a few days ago, the lovely Evelyn Clark from the amazing You Have My Interest Wealth podcast interviewed me to ask me how I got into property. And we discussed the best areas around Australia to buy versus not capital city versus capital city and update on each of those locations. We discussed how I got into real estate and how I made and why I made the switch from shares to property, pros and cons. We talked about leverage. We talked about the importance of cash flow and yield. This was really a discussion that will benefit both beginning investors and also quite experienced investors. You know, there's a saying that strength doesn't come from doing the things you can do, but it comes from overcoming the things that you once thought you couldn't. And I think if you stick around till the end, this episode will give you a lot of strength to overcome your own obstacles and wealth creation. Let me know what you think. Here we go. Welcome to the Oz Property Investment Mastery Podcast. My name is PK and I help busy people build passive income by buying top 5% growth and cash flow property and build a portfolio using data without wasting months doing research, spending weekends at inspection or catching flights or dropping ten dollars to $20,000 on buyer's agents every single time. So if you're confused, lack confidence and just overwhelmed with all the information and marketing misinformation available online and don't know where to start, then this show is for you. Welcome, PK. So great to have you today on the podcast. Thanks, Evelyn. Good to be here. Uh, really looking forward to hearing a little bit about your story today and also the wealth of knowledge that you have um, for a lot of people out there that are either looking to get into investing in property or potentially are already property investors themselves. Um, so I thought we'd just start off a little bit by going through your story. Why did you get into property, specifically investments and what is it that, you know, makes you so excited about this topic? Okay. Um, I don't sort of have like a one minute elevator pitch or anything ready, but um, <laughs> like essentially I'm like a everyone. I graduated university and um, I was quite like academic, like I was really into um, yeah, studying <laughs> and things like that. And I became an investment banker, which was kind of my dream uh, for probably like five or 10 years all through kind of end of uh, primary school, start of high school. So I really worked hard to get there. But when I did become an investment banker, um, which was like really fun and, and a high paying position as a 21 year old, um, I found that actually I, 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 although I enjoyed it, it was just so hard. Like I was working 90 hours a week and then I looked at my boss and then my boss's boss, my boss's boss's boss, they were making like much, much, much more money, of course, than me. I think two rungs up, they were on like seven figures, but they were literally working even harder than I was. So I was thinking like I've worked so hard throughout university to get to where I am, but this is not really the life I want. Um, I do want the money, if I can say so. Like I do want that um, abundance of, of resource so I don't have to... Um, make choices in life. That was just kind of like my mindset at the time. Um, but I don't want to have to work this hard. Um, you know, so that was, I don't know if I was being lazy, but that was my mindset. So then all of a sudden, I knew everything about the stock market as an investment banker does. And I was like, I still can't figure out how to build like 
a retirable passive income, you know, so that maybe in 10 years time, you know, if I'm audacious enough to say, by the time I'm 31, I can stop working and just retire. And maybe I was just overambitious, but I was like, I, stock market, I can't do this because there's lack of leverage, it's too risky, it's just too much stress for me, even though I was on the inside. And so then I got into property because everyone invests in property in, in yeah. Australia and I went to all the seminars and things like that. And it didn't really rub me the right way, it seemed a bit scammy. Um, but nonetheless, I did a lot of work myself and, and got into real estate. And I'm really passionate about it because, at least for me, it, it did really well. I mean, I, I'm sure I made tons of mistakes, as everyone does. Um, but for me, I'm really passionate about it because it actually did allow me to, to leave my nine to five. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned a really key word there that I just want to touch on a bit more, and that's leverage. And you mentioned that, you know, the stock market in particular had a lack of leverage. So for those that potentially don't really understand the difference in investing in shares versus investing in property and how you can make that leverage work for you, can you touch on a little bit about that and how maybe it helps you kind of, you know, really project that wealth creation quicker? Yeah, sure. I mean, essentially, it's quite basic. Like, let's say you've got $50,000. And I think when you are young, potentially, you know, you see online and perhaps your family and friends, they invest in stocks and maybe they had a great year and it goes up 20% and everyone's like high five each other. Fair enough, right? So 50000 to start with, it goes up let's say 10% or 20%, that's five or $10,000, which is, you know, that's good. But if you take that same $50,000 and you apply leverage on it, leverage meaning you get a loan from the bank, the bank can probably lend you, I'm just making this up, round numbers, $300,000, okay, if you've got an adequate income and things like that. And so then you can add your three hundred, your $50,000 to that three hundred k loan and you can go out and buy a property for $350,000 and let's say that increases let's just say 10% just to be conservative after even just one or two years then 10% on $350,000 is $35,000 so the stock market went up by 10% gave you $5,000 return on $50,000 the property market went up 10% you got $35,000 return on your same initial $50,000. So obviously 35 is 30,000 more than just 5,000. You started yeah. with the same, but cash on cash return is higher in the real estate market. And of course you can leverage or, or you can gear up in the stock market as well, but no bank is going to consistently allow you to take out 80% loans or, you know, only require 20% deposit. It's more like 50% loans that they give you, whereas in the real estate market, they give you, I mean, these days, even up to 95% in some instances, but to be safe, around 80 to to 88%. And so for me, looking back on it was like, it was just a no brainer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great example you've given there. And it's something that, um, you know, we see time and time again, where for probably more those people that are buying or trying to buy multiple investment properties, the element of leverage is something that can be a really useful tool for them to be able to not just acquire the first, but then acquire the second and third as that property starts to increase in value. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I think, I mean, you're a you're a mortgage broker. You're in this space all the time. You know much better than I do that 
good debt is your friend. There's bad debt, like credit card debt and, um, I don't know, getting a loan for a car and stuff mm. like that or an overseas holiday. But then there's good debt, which actually allows you to invest and that investment compounds. And I think yeah. perhaps in our education system, this difference isn't well articulated. And so everyone thinks every type of debt is bad, but I have a strong belief that in order to be debt free, you know, have your own home and in some years in the future be debt free or mortgage free, it's imperative to actually start with good debt. You need mm. good debt to be debt free, as counterintuitive as that sounds. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. And so <clears throat> how did your uh how did your property journey sort of start out? You mentioned you made a few mistakes. Uh I'm sure we all have. Um uh-huh. What were some of those mistakes? What were some of your first learnings? Yeah, so I think um, I think I was quite perhaps lucky. Um, I did do a lot of work, but in in terms of um, understanding all the data that was available in the Australian market and building my own sort of you could say models or or relationship curves between various factors and what actually drives growth in particular mm-hmm. suburbs. But I think my third property, I think it was in 2015 that I got in Cairns, that was like a huge mistake because back then, and I I wasn't super experienced. So back then there was this talk of, okay, the Australian dollar is falling. Therefore, it makes traveling to Australia much more affordable for overseas people. Like that logic is sound. And Cairns is a tourist economy, or at least it was back then. Now it's more diversified. Mm. And so I was thinking, well, that is going to mean a whole lot of new people come into Cairns. Therefore, you know, like lighting a fire under its economy. They were expanding their airport. There was this talk of some like Hong Kong billionaire building a casino. And it was going to be like a star casino, like some, you know, huge sort of complex that they were going to spend billions on that would completely make. They were saying it's Kansas is going to be like Las Vegas, right? right. <laughs> and as someone who, in hindsight, was very naive, I kind of bought into a lot of that. And I was like, oh, God, I can get something in Kansas for 400K that pays for itself. Like, this is going to become a million bucks in like five years' time or something yeah. like that. And so right now, that property really didn't do anything except for the last one or two or three years. Now it's probably like 550, 600. But for the first five years, it was just flat because despite the Australian dollar going down, it's not like tourists just go to Cairns. They go everywhere in Australia. No one's just coming to Australia just to go to Cairns, right? And that Hong Kong billionaire went broke or there was something that went on and it didn't end up, of course, investing in, in Cairns. And so I think my biggest lesson from that is don't get swept away in the sort of headlines of the media or the headlines of even property professionals. Perhaps even I'm guilty of like sensationalizing things. I think everyone should um, take a step back and, and really internalize and understand. Does it, does it feel right in your gut and does it make sense in your head? Don't, especially if you're new and I know a lot of your audience is new. Um, Evelyn, um, you can almost get FOMO, like, oh, everyone's made so much money already in the property market. Mm-hmm. I just need to get in and then there'll be happy times. I think that's a recipe for, for disaster. Yeah. And fortunately, my, my property didn't tank or anything, but I could have, there was a huge opportunity cost. That same yeah. 400K, if I had put it in, let's say, Geelong 
at that time, it would have more yeah. than doubled. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, and we talk about that all the time in terms of not reading into headlines, not letting that dictate your uh, you know, your state of mind even, and just making mm-hmm. sure that you are coming from a perspective of um, analyzing the data correctly, interpreting things correctly, making logical decisions and not just jumping at something because someone said that. And uh, this is going a little bit off track, but something that I do like to talk about is when people are looking at buying their first property, not reading into or, or purchasing a property because they think they're going to get some sort of scheme or grant or concession from it mm-hmm. yeah. and really looking at why do I want to buy that property? What's it actually doing for me in terms of, you know, is this actually a long-term investment strategy and therefore I need to buy the property based on that decision and not based on a government scheme or a concession, for example. So one thing that you mentioned there was understanding the growth factors of a particular location or what actually drives growth. So can you touch on what should people be looking at, whether it be a particular suburb or location or whether it be property data? What do you look at? Yeah, sure. Um, this is going to be a little bit controversial, but it's all backed by by data over the third, last 30 years. Yeah, I think what people naturally fall into the conclusion of is what intuitively makes sense. So you know, buy as close to the CBD as possible, buy close to water, whether it's a beach or or lake or river, buy close to a train station, buy close to a shopping center, um, buy in areas where people are wealthy. You know, all of these things make a ton of sense um, if you think about it for like 30 seconds. But then if you spend 30 minutes or 30 days analyzing it, you actually find that these things have no correlation whatsoever with capital growth. Yep. And I think people are only starting to realize that now because we have such a plethora of data. So we can actually take a topic like proximity to CBD and be like, okay, has a suburb, let's say in, in the Brisbane context, has a suburb like uh, Red Hill, mm-hmm. which is not too far from the CBD, perform better than a suburb like... I'm just going to make this up, North Lakes, all right, which is quite far, or Petrie, which is, you know, in the Moreton Bay Council, it's quite far from the CBD. And if you look at it over 30 years, you find that they've performed basically the same. If not, sometimes further out, they've performed even better. And that's not just case of Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney. It doesn't make sense intuitively, but it actually is correct if you look at Mm. the data. So I think to talk about what you should look at, first of all, you need to like plow the field and get rid of all the stones and your existing predispositions and biases of what works. I think Mm. we grow up and we need to kind of unlearn a lot of these things that perhaps our parents or society tells us. And so that's exactly what I did when I invested in, in real estate, especially my first property, because I didn't want to make a mistake. So what I found was there's actual statistical metrics and I'll go through a few of them in a second that have a clear correlation or clear uh, causation with property market growth at the suburb level. Okay. So for example, one of them is days on market. Days on market is just a fancy way of saying how long does it take from when a property is listed like on real estate or domain to when it's sold, either when contracts are exchanged between the buyer and seller or when it's unconditional, i.e. the buyer has to go through and buy that property. Now, if that's like 90 days or three months, then that suggests that, look, 
properties are sitting around, there's not, there mustn't be that much demand, right? There mustn't yeah. be that much heat in the market. But when, like in Perth right now, the average days on market is nine days. That, ex- right. that includes all the crappy suburbs as well. So the, that suggests that it's such a hot market. Just properties are getting snapped up and that suggests that property prices are going to rise. Now, mm. that is a demand side metric. Just because something is strong on the demand side doesn't mean prices automatically go up. You might find the supply is also through the roof. And so therefore, those two cancel out each other. Right. So a good uh, supply side metric is stock on market, just like we had days on market, stock on market. Stock on market simply says that in a suburb, what percentage of houses are for sale? So mm-hmm. if you have, let's say, 100 houses in a suburb and five of them are for sale, then that's 5%. Now, we generally want that to be less than 1% or 1.5%. So you could have like a suburb that is taking 90 days to sell, that stays on market, and the stock on market is like 5%. That's a recipe for prices to go down. But if the opposite is true, then prices go up. So, of course, you can't just rely on two metrics. But if you look at many of these types of metrics, not to overwhelm anyone, but there's about 30, 35 metrics that you can kind of sink your teeth into, Mm -hmm. then you can like, it's like the Mona Lisa. It's so nuanced. You can really paint a real nuanced picture of what a particular city, a particular LGA or local government area or a particular suburb is doing and therefore buy with confidence knowing that you know it's not just off a whim but it's actually based on data yeah fantastic and is this what your um your course actually looks at all of these different metrics and data yeah this is i mean this is kind of the heart of of what i teach but i think um these what i've just mentioned is so even though it may not seem simple initially you don't need to do the course to to learn this you can just like follow me on youtube or something like yeah. you can you can do this yourself you know honestly speaking and that's what what i'm all about people can invest themselves people can mm. diy if they just um if if they just take an interest or have a bit of passion for it you don't need to outsource your decision to a family member or a friend or some guru online, you can actually have conviction by learning these things yourself. Yeah, fantastic. Talking about the growth, we've talked a little bit about growth. Um, Another topic that comes up a lot and maybe people get a little bit confused about is yield. So can you talk about the differences between capital growth and yield? And when should you be worrying about one or the other or should you keep an eye on both right um it's it's a great great question i feel that you've like just tossed up the ball and i'm like a baseball player i can just hit it out of the, <laughs> out of the park um but i i once heard this analogy of that um cash flow is the oil and capital growth is the engine so if any nice car you know you obviously want a good engine because you want it to go forward but if you don't have oil then you know it's just going to putt putt tutter you know it's just going to like fail after a little while so in property investing yield is important because that is what gives us the cash flow so regardless of whether the property goes up or down in value if the yield 
is high and yield um, for those of you who don't know is essentially just your annual rent it might be like twenty thousand dollars twenty five thousand dollars whatever it is annual rent divided by the purchase price of the property so generally in australia it kind of ranges from like two percent up to about eight percent on average mm -hmm. you know give or take um so you want to get a higher yield you want to even i firmly believe even if you're a high net worth individual you still want a yield of at least five percent and and if you're not a super high net worth individual then perhaps five and a half six percent because what yield allows you to do is when you lose your job or a rainy day occurs or life throws you a lemon then you never have to sell that property because it basically pays for itself. Okay, give or take, some properties you might need to chip in 2000 a year, some properties might give you 2000 a year. But in, in the long term, you never want to have to sell that property. Now, of course, yield alone is not going to make you a millionaire, even if you have like, you know, this terminology called positive cash flow property, which means that the property gives you more rent than all the expenses, including your mortgage every year. A positive cash flow property in Australia might give you a thousand, five thousand, maybe maximum seven thousand, eight thousand a year. A residential positive cash flow property. Now that's fantastic. Like, don't get me wrong, but once again, that's not life changing. Like, and and I'm just generalizing here. For some people, it might be, but another five thousand dollars a year is is not like huge right so that's yeah. where the engine comes into it that's why we need capital growth because mm -hmm. what capital growth allows us to do is hold that property whether it's 300k property or 400k 500k whatever and it makes it a you know 300k goes up to 600k 400k goes up to 800k after seven years or 10 years or however long it takes depending on how well you bought and so that is actually what gets you out of the rat race because what you can do in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years is if you have three, four, five properties, which you've been able to buy because they've all paid for themselves because of yield, then you can sell a couple of them and use the profits to pay off the debt of the others. And so you're left with one or two or three properties that have no debt. And of course, if you bought with good yield, it's now not just giving you five or six thousand a year, it's now giving you twenty-five or twenty-six thousand dollars a year each. So that's kind of like a little bit complicated. I know that I kind of went off tangent a little bit, but <laughs> yield is so important because you can't hold those properties, you can't hold that portfolio if each property is costing you ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year um, in holding costs. You just can't do it. And so what's the point of of investing if you're just bought a property think of it like a business would you buy a business that's costing 10 20 000, 30 000 a year no of course not no. yeah yeah awesome that's fantastic uh you might have thought you went off tangent but i don't think so at all <laughs> <laughs> i think you gave the information that um needed to be given so yeah thank you for that explanation so really good analogy um, let's go around Australia a little bit. We were talking a little bit about this before we jumped into our podcast today. Um, you obviously know your data, you obviously study it. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of how the current <coughs> states and, you know, um, capital cities are all performing? Sure. Um, I'll try my best. So uh, just quickly, let's start with Brisbane. So maybe we'll just do capital cities in the interest of yep. time. Um, so Brisbane, obviously, from 2010 to 20, 
you know, it had the highest population growth of anywhere in Australia, yet property prices were basically flat. Once again, going back to what I said before, where things that you think matter, like population growth, don't actually matter as much as you think. So mm. what Brisbane then did from 2020 to 2022 is it went up like literally almost 50%. It kind of caught yeah. up all of that stagnation, that pressure build, and it went up so much. And then with interest rate rises occurring from 2020, the Brisbane property market corrected by about 8%. And then this year in 2020, since about March, it started to go up. So I think Brisbane's already recovered its correction. It's already yeah. back at sort of almost new record levels. And from this point onwards, it's interesting to see what will happen is because demand is very strong on the Brisbane side. So anyone who's trying to buy a property, like it's pretty hard in Brisbane right mm -hmm. now. Um, as we go into summer, more and more listings come on uh, for sale. That's just a seasonable attribute of spring going into summer. And so it's it's to be seen whether the the prices will continue to rise because if a lot of listings come up, sure, there's demand, but the listings absorb all that demand. So I think Brisbane has got a lot of potential. We just want to wait and see potentially one or two months how the supply side pans out. But if the supply side doesn't uh, actually absorb that demand, then I think 2024 could see, I mean, I'd, I don't want to like create FOMO or anything or, or kind of hyperbolize anything, but we could see pretty significant price rises in Brisbane, um, yeah, you know, exactly. saving if interest rates go up again a number of times, then of course it may not happen. But yeah. if interest rates only go up once or twice, then I think Brisbane's got a good year coming in mm -hmm. 24. In, in terms of Sydney, that's been the best performing market out of any capital city in 2023. And that's in part because it was the worst performing city in 2022 because of interest yeah. rate rises. They impacted Sydney more than other capital cities because in Sydney the affordability is the lowest. It takes on average um, more than 50% of your income just to service your mortgage in Sydney, which is like just ridiculous. Mm. Um, so I think Sydney, once again, if interest rates don't rise again too much, then it, Sydney will continue to do well. Um, but once again, the affordability story can't be ignored. So I think there's ups, more upside than downside to Sydney but it has to cap out in the next one or two years. It can't go on like this forever. Um, yeah. Melbourne is a very interesting one. It did decline because of interest rates, but not as much as Brisbane and Sydney in 2022. Leading up to the 2022 period, Melbourne didn't really experience as much of a COVID boom as other capital cities, and that's in part due to a fairly weak state economy. And of course, um, folks had a, a bigger and longer lockdown um, in Melbourne than in other places around Australia. And now coming out of the interest rate cycle where other cities are starting to rise in value, Melbourne is too, but at a sort of sluggish rate. And that is because the state government has basically penalized property owners in a big way um, down in Victoria with land tax increases and other ways in which property investors are sort of thinking, hey, uh, it's just not worth it from a numbers perspective to invest in yeah. Melbourne. So from that perspective, I don't think Melbourne will fall in value, but I don't think there's the best opportunity there over the short term. Adelaide has just had like a terrific period. You know, Adelaide grew more than Sydney. It, Adelaide grew more than basically any capital city between 20, uh, 2000 and 2010. 
all right? And then from 2010 to year 2020, Adelaide was like just dead flat. When I say flat, like 4% per annum, below the average nationally of about seven to eight. And then since COVID, or actually starting in 2019, Adelaide started to go up and it's gone up more, more than 50%. It's kind of top heavy now. I mean, affordability is still stronger than Sydney, but in Adelaide, people people don't like that kind of affordability. People in Sydney are kind of used to it, and Adelaide, they're not really. Yeah. So Adelaide is still chugging along. Interest rate rises have had little to no impact on both Adelaide and regional South Australia. But, you know, after a market grows by 50, 60, 70 percent, there's got to there's got to be a time where there's a slight correction, a breath, uh, you know, of just just stagnation or consolidation. That's just how property markets work. So I think it's a bit too late to invest in 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 Adelaide at the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. Regional South Australia, there might be opportunities. Perth is a really interesting one. Everyone, not everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, a lot of people look down upon Perth because historically in the last decade, it's been very volatile, experienced two mining booms, and then it was a huge decrease in value around 2023 to, uh, sorry, 2013 to 2015. And then from that, it's just been really stagnant. It started to rise in 2021. And right now, Perth is the fastest growing capital city under $600,000. That's really interesting. And, you know, everyone thinks that Perth is a mining town. However, now it's more diversified. Uh, The property market is going up, not because of investors. In fact, in Perth, there were 220,000 rental properties um, at the start of COVID. Now, not even at the start of COVID, two years before now, so around 2021, now there's 200,000 rental properties. So the investor investment or rental property pool has shrunk 10%. So what's driving Perth property prices right now is owner-occupiers. And when owner-occupiers drive prices, that's a recipe for a boom, not a bubble. A bubble goes up, then bursts, comes down. When it it occurs by owner-occupiers, it's a sustainable boom. There's record migration. In fact, Perth has the highest population growth, um, both uh, international and interstate um, out of any capital city. I just said before that population growth doesn't matter um, Mm. for for price growth. But if those people are actually buying to to live, then that actually hits the demand side. So that's the kind of um, that's that's the kind of I suppose dynamic of Perth, and I think Perth people or Western Australian people had the second highest incomes in Australia, whereas property prices are one of the lowest of all capital cities. So there's a lot of afforda- latent affordability. So even if interest rates rise, people in Perth, I mean, generally speaking, are like you know whatever we can afford it, it's no problem. So um, from a Perth perspective, I'm very bullish on that for the next one or two or three years. And in fact, over the next decade, if we just zoom out, I think um, based on looking at the data, Adelaide, um, Brisbane and Perth, if you sit here, we had this conversation in 2030, I think those three cities will have done the best. And just to round it off, I know I've missed a few places, apologies, but just to round it off, we talked about yield before. It's these three cities that have the best yield. So it's a kind of a, I suppose, a, I don't want to say golden opportunity. That seems a bit too hyperbole, but it's a, it's a good opportunity to buy in these three areas where you don't have to sacrifice yield like mm-hmm. you do in Sydney and Melbourne, um, but you're going to get the best growth likely over the next uh, decade. Yeah, wow. I love that. Um, 
Oh, sorry, there's a lot. I just want you to keep lot, talking. To I just want you to keep telling me information. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, that's probably like the reason I like listening to you talk is because you give the real raw numbers. You're not you're not just sort of going off. You can tell you're not just going off assumptions. You have actually studied this data and you know how it's performed and where it's going. So thank you for that. I think even just that piece of content alone, our listeners are going to get so much value from. And from there, you know, they can really take that away and go, okay, great. Well, if these are the areas that, you know, we're looking at from historical data and potential future projections, now they can really drill down into suburbs and starting looking at those metrics in terms of how particular suburbs have are going to perform or have performed like you were talking about with those 30 to 35 key metrics earlier. So mm-hmm. that's amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I think it's um, it's really important because I think once you're a property prof- professional for a long time, you you build up a set of assumptions in your mind based on your experiences, but it's really important for us professionals to always be really loyal and chase to the data. And if something we thought like I thought was always right, but then the data contradicts it. I have to be like, just share the data because that's mm. what helps make money, not my expertise, so, so to speak. Yeah, totally. Fantastic. Yeah. Are there particular areas that you have your eye on at the moment personally? Um, so like personally, I'm I'm actually in un, almost under contract for a commercial property. Um, so it's, it's the commercial market, um, which is obviously for those people who don't know is like retail, you know, shops, Mm. um, things like warehouses for storage and also office space. Um, I'm in the market for a warehouse, a commercial property, and we're looking at one in Brisbane right now. And the reason I'm looking at that is because leading up to the Olympics, I mean, everyone makes a big deal of the Olympics, but I think if you ask people how many people actually watched even more than two hours of the last Olympic Games, I don't think many people can put their hand up. So I think I'm a little bit outspoken as to say that the Brisbane Olympics, Olympic Games is not going to create such a big impact on Mm -hmm. Brisbane as some people think it will. Olympic Games in the past were magnificent, you know, pompous affairs, but in recent history and definitely going forward, the model has changed to be more like Olympics light, where they repurpose a lot of infrastructure that you don't have to build like a million stadiums, Mm. you just repurpose it. There's not that many people who attend the Olympic Games, the online views and audience has gone down. So the reason I'm saying all this is that I'm still very bullish on on Brisbane. I think the Olympics are a good thing, but I don't think anyone should invest in residential real estate because the Olympics are happening in 10 years' time. But the reason I'm investing in, or hopefully investing in commercial property, um, it's actually quite close to the airport, is because there's just a lack of supply. There's almost like no decent warehouse space on key arterial roads leading to the airport and for commercial warehouse or industrial property you really need like trucks to be easily be able to transport things to the airport Mm. depending on the type of tenant you have and with the olympic games coming notwithstanding everything i just said there's going to need a a need um, for much more logistics and supply chain management from a lot of online retailers etc etc so i'm quite bullish on commercial property around the airport precinct um, in brisbane and so that's where I personally have have my eye. But if I was investing in 
Um, if I was investing in residential real estate, then like I said before, regional South Australia, um, Perth, a lot of parts of Perth actually, um, yeah. and also regional Queensland, you know, places like Toowoomba, places like Townsville, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. I think they have a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of runs on the board that, that we'll see that they've made in 2030 if looking back. Yeah, amazing. Do you, um, are you already in commercial property yourself? Yeah, I've got yeah. a, I've got a small, I would say in number, um, portfolio of, of commercial properties, which I only really just started in the last three years. Yeah. Cool. I generally tend to see that most people that are starting to invest in commercial properties usually have some sort of established residential portfolio. Um, Mm -hmm. Commercial properties are typically harder to get into from day one when you're looking at the comparison to a residential property for a variety of factors. One of those purely just being the the leverage required um, or the the costs involved in getting into it from a um, upfront deposit perspective, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think commercial property, particularly in what we've seen is starting to become, uh, people are starting to open their eyes up a lot more to it now as well, which is great to see. And what are some of the reasons that you're looking at commercial or that you're starting to build out that side of your portfolio? I think, um, from, from, for me and, and my wife, you know, after you have a set amount of residential properties, um, which we're very blessed and grateful to have. You you know you don't just want to go from like twelve to like thirty. At least we don't because, like, let's be honest, it's a bit of a headache to manage twenty or yeah. thirty properties. I, I I just don't don't want that. So for me, a key reason is to increase the price point at which I'm looking. So for my residential, I was always buying around five hundred k ish or less because they grow just as much as more expensive properties, but have higher yield, which we talked about. Um, yeah. But if if I have more resources to invest, then I don't want to go off and buy like eight 500k properties because now I'm like just buying myself a full-time job. So <laughs> that's why I'm going for commercial because I can lump more funds in just one property, have a real quality asset, a real quality tenant with a long lease. And for me, we're just where we are in our investment um, journey we just want to be as passive as possible. Like we've done a lot of things like development and like really rolled up our sleeves, but maybe we're just getting old and lazy. We just want to like, you know, just be as passive as, as possible. But to your point, uh, more and more people are looking at commercial these days. I think in the last three, four, five years, it's become very much um, like more in season to consider or buy commercial. But I think at the same time, not to be negative or anything, but just to be practical and realistic, in the last five years, we've probably had the best economy that Australia's ever had. I know that we yeah. went through COVID, but everyone knows how lucrative it was in the end for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to be careful that if and when unemployment goes back to normal levels, right now it's at abnormal levels, like under 4% is not normal. If it goes back up to 5 6%, um, the economy goes um, a bit more soft, then it's a lot of these commercial properties, more so than residential, that are affected because these small businesses, the tenants, they just will stop paying and they, they will Correct. just leave and they'll have arrears. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's just important to, at least for me, this is how I think and, and I try to be as conservative as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And that talks to the quality of the tenant 
and the importance of the tenant, I think, in commercial properties as well. You know, that there's so much value in that lease, not just the actual asset that you're buying, um, mm-hmm. but being able to secure someone that is going to have certainty of repaying, uh, you know, basically giving you a set yield or a set uh, lease amount for a significant period of time. We see in commercial properties, for example, your your leases may have options anywhere from like a two by two initial lease right through to a fifteen to twenty five year set term. So the the difference in the lease terms for commercial and residential are drastically different. And the other part of it too is um, around the responsibilities of the tenant. So in residential, like you say, the more residential properties you own, the more of a headache it can be in terms of managing repairs, managing maintenance, the changeover of tenants, all of that sort of thing. Whereas in your commercial uh, property space, the tenant typically will pay all outgoings, maybe minus land tax. Yeah, I mean, exactly right. I mean, most times they pay a lot of outgoings. Sometimes, like you said, they don't pay land tax or property management fees um, and things like that. And, And I think, yeah, if you can, like you said, if you can land a terrific tenant that actually understands their business and their business is strong not because i think one thing that one thing that i learned evelyn was you can have a terrific lease you know like mm. a real rock solid lease but if that tenant's business is experiencing perhaps for the last 4 years 3 years a decline in profit margins or a decline in revenue then even though they're obliged as per the lease to pay you they can just stop paying you. And I know it's a contract, but in my own experience, there's really not much you can do about it. You can take them to court and you can go down that route. But let's say for the average investor who's buying a 500K to a million dollar commercial property and the tenant has one year left and they're due to give you, I don't know, $30,000, $40,000 and they just don't stop giving it to you. Then to go through court and everything costs like twenty thousand, twenty five thousand anyway. Yeah. So, I think um, not. I mean, that's kind of like a worst case scenario. But I think it it's really important, as you said, to have a, a rock solid lease. But also, before you buy a commercial property, understand their business and figure out if you can if that business is going to be around and strong for the next five or ten yeah. years. Yeah, absolutely. I think this kind of alludes to what we've seen happening in retail as well, where you know, retail as a a general sort of um, principle has declined, particularly the re- like strip retail where a lot of things have gone online. COVID was a big facilitator in that happening as well. So that's where selecting a commercial property, it's really important to understand the business that you're, that you're effectively um, going to be or is going to be leasing that property from you and how their uh, economy might be impacted as well. Yeah, no, well well yeah. said. I think yeah, commercial isn't necessarily harder than residential I found. It's just um it's just different things to look at and different contingencies to mm. be wary of. Like in the price point that I'm looking, I know that if the tenant leaves, then there will be a one year vacancy. And so we can get I can get all over the moon and be like celebrate a whatever it is, you know, passive income, a six figure passive income that's coming in from this one commercial property. But I need mm-hmm. to budget that every perhaps three years, every five years, every seven years is going to be a whole year of vacancy. So I need to yeah. taper back my expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, 
A couple more questions I just wanted to finish off with. For anyone that is really looking to get their foot in the door in uh, creating some sort of wealth for themselves through property, whether that be residential, whether that be commercial, what would you say are sort of first steps that you would encourage them to take? Um, And I guess any tips that you have for that sort of real beginner um, investor? Sure. it's such a good question and it's like different ways to answer it. But I think if I'm just putting myself in the shoes of a beginner investor, what I'm seeing is there are loads of people marketing properties and loads of people talking about the property market as authorities on podcasts, um, on YouTube, on Facebook, on you know Instagram, all sorts of places. And it's so easy to kind of go into a vortex of a particular provider and and just be sold on their charisma or their knowledge or their product or service. Um, but I think it's really, really essential to, before you part with any money, whether it's by, you know, through a buyer's agent or a course or this or that, it's really important to get a diverse um, array of sources of knowledge. And so, you can then see, okay, this person is contradicting that person, that person has got a different strategy to this person. Then you all of a sudden see, okay, the person I was following may not be right, or maybe they they are right, but why is this person saying an opposite thing? And that will cause people to, a new person to think, because I think there's a quote that, it's not my quote, I can't remember who who said it, it's (laughs) like 70% of the world's population um, don't think. Twenty percent of the world's population think they think, and the ten percent of the world's population actually think. So obviously, we want we don't want to be in the seventy percent, but nor do we want to be in that twenty percent who are following this one or two people, and they're thinking that they're doing research, but actually they're just following and just like lapping up everything right. this one or two people are saying. So a diverse sense of um, content consumption is really important. And then before you do anything, you have to speak to someone like um, yourself, Evelyn, like a mortgage broker, and really understand like what it is that your financial capacity allows. You know, mm-hmm. can I even buy a property or can I not buy a property? What's my budget? And, and with a good accountant and with a good mortgage broker, these two people are really key to build a strategy like okay, I'm new, I have this vision or dream to get a six-figure passive income, to use a cliche, what's actually possible for me? It may not actually be possible for you, or it may not be possible in the, in the time frame that you think it is. So get these two professionals, and most of the time they will give you at least some advice for free, and if you vibe with them, then, then you can work with them more closely. Um, and so that's probably the second step. And then the third step, coming back to your point around data, is before figuring out exactly where and what to buy, make sure you understand the data because mm-hmm. I don't care if you're a one year into the industry or you're 50 years into the industry, everyone is fallible and everyone can be wrong. And in fact, there are professionals um, that have been in the industry for decades, but what they say just blatantly contradicts just the cold, hard data. So I think you can't 
honestly trust anyone with that decision making. You have to only trust yourself. And the way you trust yourself is by actually understanding the numbers, actually understanding the data. I always like to say that no one cares about your money as much as you do. Um, and I will also say, including me. So like mm -hmm. no one will take care of you if something goes wrong. No one will, they'll only congratulate you and, and give you a high five if something goes right. So protect yeah. your risk, protect your downside, protect your assets, protect your family, protect your financial future by becoming educated, whether that's through free sources and you should start with free sources, maybe even end with free sources, but then also um, pay for it if you need to, because, you know, price is what you pay and value is what you get. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I think that was just a fantastic way to summarize uh, and give a really good sort of clear, you know, clear and concise steps one, two, and three on, on where to start and how to start building that knowledge base. So I really appreciate this conversation today, PK. I've, you know, kind of inspired me a little bit. <laughs> so um, yeah, I really appreciate it. And um, I would love to let the listeners know where they can get some more information on yourself. So you've obviously got YouTube, you've got your course. Can you share a little bit about the content that you create and what you have on offer for people that might be interested in following you? Yeah, sure. So just like your podcast, I have a podcast. It's called Oz Property Mastery with PK and, and my YouTube channel, Australian Property Mastery with PK. Um, and then I really quite passionate about my community on my Facebook group, which is once again, Australian Property Mastery with PK. There's 40,000 like just amazing, amazing community members there. Many of them are like much more successful than me. And I think the power of community is when you join that group, it's free. Um, and you ask questions, or even if you don't ask questions, what you get is like a real solid, um, and I try to moderate it in the sense that it's a data-driven debate on all things, whether it's strategy, where to buy, what to buy, how to negotiate, um, you know, how to renovate, how to develop, like the whole gambit, gamut of, of property um, information is there in real time, people doing it right now, not just based on someone who did it 20 years ago. And I think, you know, the beauty of that is at least this community, everyone is so willing to help each other. There are people who DM me like every single week who say, PK, I didn't do your course, but I bought this property and thank you so much for your community. Honestly, that makes me feel just as good as when a client DMs me and says, I bought the property through your course because the main thing is action. So I think join that community or, or, or follow me on YouTube. And just like your podcast is, is, um, is inspiring people, Evelyn, I think the main thing is people take that knowledge and, and put it into action.